Welcome to the Smartest Podcast, brought to you by Smartistry.org. The Smartest Podcast is for creatives and artists of every discipline. We'll talk about the challenges and opportunities of creatives in today's marketplace. We'll help you personally, professionally, financially, and artistically to take your creative work to the next level and build a more sustainable life. Hello and welcome to the Smartest Podcast. I'm Melissa Peck, the founder of Smartistry, and I am delighted to be back with you after a short podcasting hiatus to get back to some amazing conversations, exploring the intersections between creativity and personal finance and entrepreneurship. And I am really excited and thrilled to have a special guest with us for the episode. His name is Monty Cole, and he is an award-winning theater and film writer-director from Oak Park uh, here in Illinois. He has directed for Steppenwolf, Center Theater Group, the Goodman Theater, the Repertory Theater of St. Louis, and many others. His plays include American Teenager, which was a commission from the Goodman Theater, and Black Like Me, an adaptation of the 1961 novel currently in development with the Repertory Theater of St. Louis. Monty recently finished his residency as one of four writers in the Goodman Theater's Playwrights Unit, and he is also currently an artist in residence at the Center for New Performance. This summer, Monty's gonna direct three short films, Six Feet Apart by Isaac Gomez, Sons of Toledo, written by Cole and Matt Foss, and his own short, Cole. And by the way, Monty has a BA in theater studies from Emerson College and an MFA uh, in directing from the California Institute of the Arts. Monty, welcome. Thank you so, so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for reading all that. <laughs> <laughs> it's very distinguished, and I do not want to diminish one iota of it. That is a lot of hard work you've done for all those uh, credits, really. Not going um, on, yeah. Right, right. Um, we're going to talk all about your projects over the summer. I cannot wait to hear more about those. Um, the reason why I reached out to Monty is because of his amazing essay that came out this past March um, called The American Theater is Not Built for Us, which is like an incendiary title, is it not? <laughs> yeah, it is. It used to be so much more academic. And then I, one of my writer friends is like, that's not what this is about. You know what this is about. I was like, yeah, I do. Here it is. This is what it's going to be. Let's blow it up. So, <laughs> um, I related so, so much to this essay, and I really want to share some of the highlights and um, the, the thought process that went into writing it. Um, can you tell us first, why did you decide to sit down and write this piece? Yeah, I mean, so I'm in... I consider myself an artist. I'm a writer-director first. I, I did a good amount of producing... Where I like really allowed myself to become a, more of a full-time artist. I was um, the artistic programs manager at Victory Gardens Theater, which was a catch-all job where I was um, 
the casting director in charge of the access project in charge of the resident theater program sometimes i'd work for like soundboard and random events and producing random events and so uh it was me isaac gomez who is now an incredible screenwriter and playwright uh and uh and robert cornelius a wonderful actor in the city who was in charge of education and cheyu it's kind of the four of us and joni schultz was in residency well and um yeah, and so I, I, I did producing work. I, I worked for um, the uh, I also worked for Next Theater as a marketing director. I before that I created the Chicago Commercial Collective with Brian Lovner and Aurelia Fisher, which the whole point of that company was basically like, hey, this nonprofit thing doesn't seem like it works very well. What if we can find a way to combine the nonprofit and the commercial? Because that seems like to be a natural fit. And what if we could have a system in which um, we could have um sort of an off-broadway theater in chicago a sort of mid-sized commercial scene and so we would take shows that were commercially successful at nonprofits and try to keep them in chicago instead of disappearing or going to new york um and so i had this sort of producing macro thinking i i think like that for sure but uh realistically I'm not a very good producer. I'm a much better artist than I am a producer. So uh, I have these ideas and these thoughts on a, on a macro level, but it doesn't mean that I actually want to be a producer. Uh, <laughs> that's all to say, I just kept on noticing these patterns. Um, and a lot of it was coming from, for the beginning of this, I feel like the the first version of this essay was probably called Will Davis Did Everything Right? Uh, like three years ago, maybe more than that, actually, American Theater Company closed here in Chicago, and Will Davis was the new artistic director, and he, in my opinion, did everything right. He um, picked up. I mean, the, it was a it was a tragedy that happened to that theater company. Their artistic director um, died in a car crash, and um, uh, Will Davis came in as a trans-identifying artist and basically um, completely revitalized the place. They, he, he made it so that it was no longer five plays a season, it was three plays a season. He uh, made it so that the instead of constantly reconfiguring the space like the black box that their space was, he kind of confined it to be um, one configuration, the proscenium, so that they could save money. He just try to cut costs where we could just to make solid work. He um, was making connections with the community, whether it was the artist community in a way that honestly, the previous American theater company just didn't do, or it was the, the, the local community, the audience community. He was there before every show and at there after every show making connections and like being exactly what you would think an artist director should do. And the reason why I think American Theatre Company closed, besides, you know, a board that wasn't great, to be honest, and a lot of uh, misogyny and uh, homophobia, was um, Will Davis did not program commercial work. He programmed developmental work, work that needed space to work out some kinks. And they weren't going to be perfect, but they were going to be... um, the next step that that play needed because it was a non-profit theater company uh, that was should, that should be a space for development. Um, he would create experiments with classics. He would try all sorts of things that were um, 
that what nonprofits should be allowed to do and um and those financial quote unquote failures is what made that company start to fold and i started to realize that it's it's insane that the nonprofit can't really allow itself to be this safe creative artistic developmental place it's really to some people in its best case scenario a place to development to develop commercial ideas and to um for upward growth like a goal for a theater company is we're going to get bigger and bigger we're going to own more real estate we're going to own we're going to become we're going to go to broadway and that is how you show signs of success versus artistic success right so every step is just a building block to the next to financial success right right so i so, just kept on trying to figure out um why that was and and actually another another thing I, I, specifically at the beginning of the pandemic i i was talking with someone who was like since when did the nonprofit theater like not support artists and i wanted to be like since uh, never i think uh and that was like um me just thinking generally across like american theater and not very specifically and i was like right that's true right and the more i tugged on the history of it the more i did research on my own the more i found like oh yeah this is at the very core the very core of what we've done like in every age of the american theater there's been an expectation of commercialism and uh and we've just strangely fooled ourselves into thinking that we're above it if you mention the word commercial in chicago it's like you've used profanity <laughs> yes which is deeply ironic isn't it Cause that's absolutely absolutely so in your weaving together this history and this you know evidence that you're compiling um of of how this system and power structure and hierarchy has basically worked as designed all, all, you know, all across American theater history. Um, you know, you talked in the essay about the nonprofit system at length. You talked about the different fundraising models that we see today. Um, so as you were researching and, and reviewing all of this, were there any other big surprises or like aha moments that you had? I think the biggest thing for me was checking the Ford Foundation's website. <laughs> I It blew my mind that the Ford Foundation had a library where you can year by year just check their annual reports and just like I'm clicking on PDFs that are scanned books <laughs> basically of uh, their annual reports on a yearly basis. And fascinating because you can see what uh, the values were at the time, because as is the case and usually with America, whatever the money is going to is where the values are. And so you can kind of see like, in general, there was a tendency to um, give money to individual artists before, but then around the sixties, there came the idea of like, 
how do we support um, these institutions that want to become something? Um, especially the the nonprofit, the five hundred one c three started to become a popular form of incorporating. Um, that that became something that the Ford Foundation wanted to support. And as soon as I read, it was like, um, it's not just that uh, that the Ford Foundation was going to be supporting these companies and that they were going to just like give them a a few mil or a couple a, a hundred, couple hundred thousand and 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 hope for the best. They specifically said, like, you know, we're hoping that these companies will eventually be able to rely on their own, you know, two feet and that they would be able to have uh, box office sales to be able to do that. And from the get go, you go, oh, well, there's a losing strategy. I mean, they're, they're talking about in the Ford Foundation papers, like, we're modeling this off of Europe. We're hoping that this will work out as well as it does over there. We want to have these acting repertory theater companies like they do over there. We want to create a new strong tradition of American theater. And it's like pretty obvious the difference between those two financial models and why the American theater was destined to fail. Right. So if I'm understanding basically how you just laid it out, there was originally a focus on um, sort of patronage and a support of the individual to help nurture and grow talent and, and to grow works of art. And then it became, you know, with the, with the incorporation model, um, the, the 501 model, like it, it moved toward becoming more of an organization, more of a corporation model, and therefore the expectations changed, right? Totally. And I think also... If you asked, if you ask anyone from that generation, or if you ask anyone from the '80s or '90s, I mean, it changes uh, on a on a decade basis, probably. But they would say that at first it was working. Probably, they would say at first, like, "Wow, we got this really great financial support, and and things were kind of booming at first. I mean, if you look at even if you look at Chicago theater, like what companies are still around from that time period, it's like there was a foundation there for them. Um, in a way that there isn't right now. And that's because they they built that foundation to be pretty, it, it's pretty temporary. It feels like uh, after a certain point, they what, what choice did they have but to start to really rely on the upper class? Absolutely. And that, I think, you know, on this uh, podcast, we've talked a lot with other artists about scarcity mentality and about the, the nature of the competition that we all feel that, that allows abuse to, to grow and blossom and allows, you know, all these kind of insidious things to go on under the surface. So I think those go hand in hand, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and um, it, it blows my mind, actually, I've been noticing this, I mean, this might be a bit of a non sequitur, but like, uh, my friend and I were just discussing the other day how we feel like the companies that have less money treat their people like shit. They treat artists and the people who work for them like shit. And it's, 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 that's it's so crazy to me. Cause it's like, I, you, you can't pay me. So the very least you can do is treat me well. Right. Like the very least you can do is not, um, you know, be an ass. Um, and yet those are usually usually when you go to these uh, larger companies, it's not only 
that you're getting more resources, but the people there are, are kinder. And it's because they're also more, they're probably usually better supported as well. And because they're not operating as much out of a scarcity mindset as the smaller company. And so in turn, I think probably that culture um, that can, can be a more inclusive culture, I'm not saying it always is, but it can be, um, and that is, you know, a more nurturing culture, that's where you have an opportunity and a, um, a climate to really create something new and different that might not be commercial, right? Um, totally, totally. I, uh, I, you know, I had a pretty incredible experience this last summer working at the Repertory Theater in St. Louis with their artistic department uh, and Hannah leading that department. And the entire time, the entire time, I, the question that I was being asked was, what do you need? What do you need? And it was crazy because Hannah was literally like, like about to give birth any second and then did. And then was like, you know, at first rehearsal holding her newborn baby being like, you know, I'm here for you guys. It's like, geez, <laughs> like you, like how am I, why I walked out of that process being like, oh, it can be so nice. Why has it been so difficult this entire time? Why, why are we always treated so poorly if we could be treated so nicely like that? It was, um, it, 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 I was treated so well that it made me mad at other situations. And it wasn't, you know, me getting paid well. It wasn't even resources, really. It was just respect and uh, trust. Wow. Wow. It sounds like a beautiful uh, experience. And I think <laughs> for any of us who have had that kind of a collaborative experience that that transcends from the artistic to the personal, um, it, it, it really makes you want to keep doing this work. Right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And it's, um, yeah. And I think to be honest, this year has been a big reflection for people to be like, wow, I have not usually been treated like that. And that's how you get something like we see you white American theaters, because it's like, why haven't we been treated like that? And what can we do to take steps so that we can be treated well in this, in the workplace? There's so much of that bubbling up to the surface. I want to talk about year 2020 for you personally, and and um, we can dive in on some of these uh, sort of harbingers of change that are coming, which is a good thing. Um, but before we do that, I had a couple more questions about the, the essay specifically, and I totally. think that will some more. So um, we were talking about the nonprofit model. We're talking about sort of the the institutional culture of of the creation of, of work. In your essay, you made a, a quick detour on the topic of development, as in the development of new work, and that that part of the essay really spoke to me. Can you talk about why you felt that was such an important foundational component of the essay's overall argument? Yeah, because the way we create work um, affects the work that is seen and produced, right? So um, those things cannot be um, taken separately. And I, I think oftentimes we do. I think oftentimes we assume process. We assume that everyone has the same process and therefore 
there's the same, same potential for a successful product. And that's just crazy not true. <laughs> uh, in fact, oftentimes no one asks even what the person, the artist process is. They just assume, hey, we have this pipeline here. You're going to have to crawl through this pipeline in order for you to have, in order for you to create something successful or what we deem to be successful. Um, and so uh, I've found that my development process and my process in general is is pretty different. Um, and like I say in the essay, um, and I'm kind of hinting at it now, in order to expect a different product, you have to create a different process. Um, one of the most in inspiring things that happened for me at, when I was a student at CalArts was I would just see so many people experiment with so many different processes in a way that I don't normally see in the regional theater or otherwise. So seeing people do that, I was like, oh, no wonder they're, the work that they're making is so unique and different. It's because they're creating different processes that may result, result with a different product. And so... Specific? Like, I, I would love to hear an example. Totally. So like, um, for example, right now, I'm writing a feature film. Um, I'm not a good sit down at a desk writer, like really bad at it. Uh, I That whole, <laughs> my time during the playwrights unit at the Goodman Theater was really hard for me because like, it was like, hey, so, you know, at a certain time of the month, you'll come in with new pages, we'll read those new pages, give notes, and then you'll go back to your computer and then you'll write new pages and you'll come back next month and you'll show those new pages. And I'm just not uh, <laughs> a good, I'm not a good writer like that. Um, I can... I'm best when I'm in a space with artists and I'm interviewing them and asking them questions and participating them with them. And I'm being vulnerable as well. And in the room, we are building something on our feet. And then I, you know, and then I go home and then I like, you know, I might pull out the recording of the rehearsal or write, pull out my notes and start writing from what we have created in the room together. But I, I'm not good at just like spitting out a play. Um, so like right now I'm in rehearsals, quote unquote, for a screenplay workshop where on a, you know, three times a week I come in with new pages, uh, we read them out loud and then, um, there's a break and then I divide the actors off into group and they almost like create these like multi-channel installations on them on their own they like go off into these breakout groups based off like our discussion or based off the pages i brought in and they take whatever words that i have brought in and then they blow it up with creativity and they make we, we make crazy stuff on zoom basically and then i take that and then i kind of regurgitate that into a new form in my screenplay and it just makes my work a little more creative a little more collaborative and I just need something to be inspired by. I just can't, I can't be inspired by myself. I'm not a really good self-generating artist. So that does not fit into most not theater uh, new play development processes. Most of them will say, hey, here's what <laughs> a small sum of money. We want you to write a play. And then when you have that done, send us a draft. And then we might give you a stage reading. And then we might give you another stage reading in front of an audience. And then we're going to throw you into the rehearsal room and you better have this thing figured out by opening night. And 
that's crazy to me. No, and that's the other thing. Like, for example, like, I, you know, I believe in um, the audience affecting the work a lot. I think that, like, I, I build a lot for audiences. And so for Black Like Me, we we had a whole process where, you know, I asked for affinity groups after my, for the reading of it. And I asked for folks to um, to be broken off into different Zoom groups so we can hear them, like, really honestly talk about the play in a way that they might not be able to if they were around different people. And um, and then I asked for folks if they wanted to to like fill out a survey, and I have 28 pages of audience responses to Black Like Me that affect the next draft. I'm not I'm not developing in a silo. Like that doesn't make any sense to me. I, I no no Pixar film has ever been developed in a silo, and I don't know why we in theater expect to like cross our fingers and then go to opening night and be like, I hope this is good. <laughs> like, I, yeah. I I know I know to some extent what an audience response can be before I get to opening night. So, uh, and the only way I'm able to do that is usually outside of the regional theater system. Like I said, because I can't rely on some stage reading usually. With Black Like Me, we did the Zoom thing. Um, it worked out pretty well. Um, but for the most part, what I do is I try to use universities, their resources, and um, and because those are spaces where I can create a workshop production, I can work with students who are willing to to develop and collaborate. You know, sometimes when you work with professional artists, they're not like, "Hey, I'm here to make a product, right? I'm not really here to do this process thing. I'm here to make this product and for me to look good, so I can move on to the next stage in my career." Whereas that's less the case in a university setting. And then from there, I can be like, hey, you know, theater company, here's what I've built at this um, in this university setting. And here's what I can bring to your professional quote unquote setting. And I, I personally need that. I, I need to be working on my feet. And so that's what I, I think there are other processes outside of the literary process that we need to figure out how to reward. And that's not just uh, theater companies that need to figure that out. I think universities who are often sometimes um, archaic uh, need to start figuring that out too. That's interesting because my experience in academic theater in undergraduate and graduate programs is that it, it was the only place that I ever felt safe to make mistakes, safe to take risks um, in creating something collaborating and and trying those new processes so I can I can really relate to your thinking on on how that's so so different from the professional realm yeah uh, a, uni a university should be a lab it should be a space where you're allowed to f go away and fail <laughs> so and to be honest so should a nonprofit, but it's not. So let's just understand that and, and try to use the systems that we have it already. So one of the things I thought was brilliant about this essay is that you're talking so much about the tension that exists between commercial and like something maybe that's more authentic. Um, and, and, you know, those, those tensions between acceptable risk and marketability and um, you know, we know that audiences don't only like to see things that they've seen before. Right. We know that yeah. audiences like novelty, right? They always have. Yeah. So yep, yep, why yep. is it so hard? 
Yeah. No, it blows my mind because every time it does happen, usually blows up and people go, I, it, it literally every single time I see something like that in the theater, it's, there's a, there's a, it seems like it, it's ripe to be a paradigm shift. There's a, maybe a play every few years where you're, everyone has to see that thing. That thing is really unique and really beautiful and it might change the face of American theater. And then, but it's the same reason that we watch something on Netflix that, or HBO that we think, holy crap, I'm so inspired by this. This is so cool. And the imagery is so fantastic. And then they go back to the rehearsal room and they make the same BS that they always made. It's because the systems in place make it really hard to innovate in a way that it might be easier somewhere else. Absolutely. And so when we look at that, not only through the lens of the the building of the art itself, but also through the building of an audience and the, the sort of creation of that community, community shared space, what, what are some of the changes that you would like to see in how theater companies approach the task of programming and building an audience? Um, you know, I mean, the the first thing I think of is, I mean, just like the the first thing I'm is is prioritizing one, like who do we want to be speaking to, and two, prioritizing the artist. Which I mean, those both seem obvious, right? Prioritize the uh, the audience and the artist, but like I, I I don't think that's usually true. I don't know if it's if it's masturbatory if artists are just like fulfilling their own ideas of what they think theater should be or if it's more to um appease a, a local critic but it's so many times i see a, a season and I'm, i don't know who they think is going to be interested in seeing this and i doubt that these artists want to make this bullshit <laughs> so like who is this actually for um so the and 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 also um I think it also comes down to that that broad versus niche part that I'm talking about in my in my essay, where, you know, I think when people say like, "Who's my audience? Who's the audience that they want to go for?" They're like, "I want to create a space for everybody. I want it to be a, uh, everyone to enjoy this space." And then they produce, you know, George Bernard Shaw. That's not for everybody. That's definitely not for everybody. So what is? What is for everybody? Okay, so for example, Hebrew Brantley is an artist based in Chicago. He is a street art that people love that, um, like, it's, um, I mean, it's been in, like, it's not only that you'll see on on buildings everywhere. Like you'll see a character, a flyboy on, in, on streets everywhere, but also like it's been in museums. It's like merchandise at this point. And so he has made a, he made a walkthrough experience um, where you can like explore the worlds of flyboy um, in like the South loop, I think it's like kind of near Pilsen. And it was so detailed and beautiful and, you know, it was like, you know, that thing clearly got a good amount of money. I know people who are involved, who were artists involved that, you know, got paid what they should have been paid. Um, so like some nonprofit stuff. And, uh, and I just remember one, it's selling out. 
And two, um, I remember going to like the barbershop and people talking about it and people being like, I'm going to bring my girl to that thing. That's, that looks really cool. And, you know, that's an, a visual artist that has made an experience that everyone kind of wants to go experience. My 70-year-old mom has a Hebrew Brantley coffee table book. And she was like, oh, that sounds great. I definitely want to go see that. That's great. Um, so, you know, it's. I think it's a, a find what broad is. Because, you know, I can see all sorts of people wanting to go see that and not wanting to see Matchmaker or not wanting to see A Doll's House again. Um, and yet A Doll's House seems broad. A Doll's House seems like oh, of course everyone wants to go see this classic, right? No, I don't think so. I think that's actually a pretty niche audience you're talking about. And that's also about like the white suburban audiences actually niche is because it it is. It's, It's not actually, it's appealing to what they think the money is coming from, but that's actually not even where the expendable income is coming from right now. The the expendable income is coming from like older older millennials which who are definitely not going to the theater naturally um and so you know, welcome those people in the building um what are we doing to diversify not just um the color the race of people on stage but also the age groups um and usually the answer is not much agreed it's i just saw a meme the other day that was like theater companies say in this time of quarantine and shutdown we're going to reevaluate our company values and mission to make sure that when we do you know go back online we will bring you the work that is really intrinsically value driven and you know also same theater company please join us for our remounting of Greece <laughs> right right it's like okay well it looks like you're back to normal again yeah, I just I feel like um, if I, I almost um, it's a, I mentioned this at the towards the end of my the essay where I'm like I like to think of like what would my sister want to go see? She doesn't like theater, but she it's not like she doesn't like going out. She's not it's not like she doesn't like to experience live events, and that's what we do. We build live events. So how do we make that for a larger audience? That's um, that's right on the money. And I, I mean, I think you and I as directors, maybe even more than designers or even the performers, think through the, the lens of the audience experience because we're always trying to, to shape this and pull them here and push them there and, you know, kind of um, drive the, the whole experience. So in your work as a director do you find that you're like trying to take more of a stance on the programming or i mean you you kind of sit in both seats anyway but what's your experience been with that yeah so um i am and i think it depends on and you know i would say also uh it depends on the play like i can think of two plays right now that i'm like yeah i think some high schoolers would really like to see that as well as like a the average 60 something or 50 something year old um audience member like that's that seems like it's um 
if it was <laughs> let's say like if it was made into a tv show or a a movie it would not just be reserved for a certain audience it would be a little bit broader than that and then there's some that's like pretty artsy that are a little more uh, challenging let's isn't for every audience but i also am hoping that we can we can um challenge audiences to watch more um challenging work i I think we i I was i was talking with a friend the other day who uh, works in the education department and they do such a good job prepping um prepping students to come see the work uh, on their stages but that same type of work is not being done for the adults and we're pretending like adults know how to watch a play which generally they don't <laughs> generally they're like uh i would say when i make something that's a little more challenging i usually have an audience member being like so i got this part but i didn't get this part and usually i've made something like expressionistic that's like the point of it wasn't getting it like who cares about getting it uh uh I don't care if you like understand what my intentions were. I want you to have your own emotional experience and for you to go along on the ride of it and for you to kind of challenge yourself with the, the visuals of it to have your own emotional experience. There's no getting it or no quote unquote, oh, I understood it. I, I just want you to have your own, have your own thing. Audiences are not, I mean, the audience that is like, Googling everything they don't understand is not, not used to that. They're not used to that type of challenge. And we are doing nothing to help them get there. Absolutely. So I I'm I wanted to ask this question about audiences in general. You touched on the idea that who we think is Peoria, <laughs> you know, like that's those are not the only theater goers, or that's not actually the folks that are really filling seats. Do you see the typical audience getting younger, changing demographics overall? Uh, no, I see it pretty much staying the same. And I think it's interesting because I think it depends on the city. You're... Um, so sometimes, sometimes I feel like every we... like three years, there's a new city that I'm like, whoa, check out DC right now. Like, check out yeah. the work that Wooly's doing. Check out the work that, um, you know, to some extent, some of the other uh, theaters and company town we're doing. Um, Denver was interesting for a while because they had the DCPA was doing some immersive stuff, and then I think you know Meow Wolf was considering doing coming into town at one point if if they haven't already. Um, like obviously, like ooh, New York is doing something. Um, Austin, ooh, Austin's really really interesting right now. Like there's there's these moments like every three years where I feel like a new city is kind of pops into my brain and and usually it's like oh wow it looks like they're really trying to cater to a new audience and not the same old same old um but for the most part i think because of the things i say in my essay the system doesn't allow for that to evolve very much because we're convinced of certain falsehoods um are the things that that are supporting our theater I, I agree. So let me ask you, when, when you and I talked prior to this recording, you shared with me this wildly unpopular idea that you have about programming. <laughs> and I, would you mind sharing it with our listeners? Yeah. Yeah. It's the type of thing. 
It's the type of thing I can't put in the essay because I'm like, I don't really need to have these pitchforks and torches outside my apartment. But like, I think one thing that I really see in all this that I that I almost wish is I just I, I almost wish people produced less um, in general. Um, it feels like people are trying to work past their capacity. And I think that's partly because we there I think there is a very real um, I think there's a very real thing of like if you can seem larger, you can um, uh, attract a larger donor base and you can attract a more expensive donor base. you're like, ooh, this company is now in this echelon. So let's now donate to this company because um, it looks like they now are of this larger theater company's um, echelon, which I think is actually stupidly kind of true for these upper class donors. Uh, But that being said, usually the five play theater company season would be better off doing a three play theater company season. And the three play would be better off doing one. And my ideal theater company is more like the team or uh, uh, like a, like a, let's say, elevator repair service or like a manual cinema. The idea being that we're going to do one show a year and that show is going to be so good. And we've been working on this one show for a few years now. And you've been anticipating it because, you know, we've been pretty transparent in our process. You've seen, maybe you've seen a couple of our workshops and we've made tweaks from our, to our play from those workshops um, at universities or whatever. Cause that's the other thing is that universities, when they do these workshops, they don't make them very public. And it's like, you know, we, they could handle it. <laughs> and in fact, they want it. Um, but uh so the, uh, you know, we've done a few of these workshops. We're going to finally produce this one show. Uh, and I know you're excited about it. You know, it goes up. It sells out because of the anticipation. It doesn't even need to critically do well because you've built a fandom around your theater company of doing one excellent show per year. Maybe it, re- maybe it, it gets extended and then... Now it's part of your repertory and you can tour it around the country, tour it around the world while you're working on your next one. And it's not about with the goal of, ooh, someday we're going to have a building. Someday we're going to have a board. (laughs) Uh, No, it's about like um, you are, you're making work that you actually care about and that people care about and that, um, you're being paid for the time that you are there and you are making your money probably in another medium that actually pays you well. And this is your passion project. I want to see more of those companies. I, I feel like oftentimes we we all think we need to be institutions on day one. We're like, great, we're a theater company. We have to produce three plays this season so that we can be Jeff recommended. Who cares? Yep. Who cares? Make something good. Oftentimes in these ensemble companies, it feels like people are prioritizing loyalty over quality. And it's like, you can have both. <laughs> you can have quality and you can also be a good person to people. Like, But like, um, that's the, that's the thing that I'm, um, that I'm a big advocate for. I, I just, I, I, I don't care to see, more institutions but you know 
actually, strangely, weirdly, right now, you can start a theater company and be and it not be like shameful. I mean, like it is a little bit because you're like starting a theater company in a pandemic, but like after all of that, I mean, like once we're back a little bit, you can yeah. come back and make something and um and hopefully you've been developing it over a long period of time because you, you now have had this time in the pandemic to do developmental work instead of like product, 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 product. Um and you can actually just like you can build something sort of like we just want to make one really good thing and a good thing by the way not like a you know i would see uh like a walkthrough experience and it would be like this is inspired by sleep no more and it's you could tell that the people were just like proud of like hey we we got it up and it's like what if you actually like spent more time on it so that it was more than just patting yourself on the back so that you got it up but you like you also like made it really good like you made it deeper and better um and the, oftentimes the problem is time and related to time is money. And that's because we assume that theater is a place that we should be making our money. But like, if you look at the, the essay, if you look at the system that was built, this system was not built for us to make money. <laughs> it was just not built for us to have a sustainable like even if you do do like the i do nine plays a year thing like that's not sustainable so that being said make the work you want to make and figure out your financial system elsewhere or um find your institutional alliance elsewhere that will maybe allow you to have money that's interesting i want to couch that a little bit and kind of add on to it because in some of the conversations we've had on previous episodes, we've talked about valuing your work. We've talked about labor um, uh, inequities, and we've talked about some of these, you know, power dynamics that keep artists from being paid what they ought to be paid professionally. But the other thing that we have talked that I think agrees with what you just said is that sometimes the money isn't the only form of payment. Money yeah. isn't the only way to to make your life complete or to add, you know, to you as an artist. Sometimes the payment is in the collaboration. The payment is in the adventure of going somewhere and meeting all these new people or doing the, the thing you wanted to do. Or so, it's the the clout. Or it's like, hey, um, you know, we are not getting paid this i mean like we're this is um this is a passion project that um we've been working on for a long time with the understanding that like um when it comes out there's the following resources in place to make sure that this is gonna be um seen so like hey i like i'm a i'm a young artist i need visibility so th this is going to be a way to, for me to be seen or hey this is going to be taken to uh as a is going to be a co-production with the mca the museum of contemporary art and so therefore um there's a certain clout there there's there's other forms of payment but i'm just saying there's a sometimes i feel like uh i'll talk to someone who'll be like I, I okay first of all i'll say this up front you know storefronts are pay people uh ridiculously small amounts and that's part of the problem here too that what i'm saying is like the reason why they're paying the people a ridiculously small amount is because they're doing like five shows a year and they don't need to be doing that. They could be paying people better with only three or one show a year. 
but uh and 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 people hear that and they go oh that means that like but how is that even possible because you're not you're not creating as much product so why would people give money to you if you're making a third of the product as before well you still make like maybe like a smaller events on the way you, you still can like create fandom i mean like look at someone like um like a jordan peele jordan peele made a movie every two years but um there are elements that he does in the meantime that creates a fandom the, um a lot of artists okay. where you go like oh that person if i really think about it actually has not made a work of art in the two or three years but there are elements that they've done along the way to keep people involved to keep people whether it's this the idea of the transparent workshops or smaller events or just to keep people or um showing people the process along the way uh that motivate people to continue to give you money so that you can pay people right and do a less amount of work i think the whole idea of being prolific in theater is overrated anytime i see someone being like oh my god I'm doing seven shows this year. I'm like, you know, great. I hope that's because you are passionate about those seven shows and it's not because you're trying to make your paycheck because we should try to figure out a, a more healthy way to make our paycheck. This has been part one of a two-part series with Monty Cole. Join us next time for more with Monty on The Smartest Podcast. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit smartestry.org.